Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Yes. Yes. Is the youth group with us right now? We're going to dismiss the youth group at this time. And as they're exiting, I'm going to encourage you, you don't have to get up and move around too much, but look around you, see who you're worshiping with this Sunday. Wave a hello if you're close enough, feel comfortable, fist bump each other. Wow, our youth group's really growing. <laughs> look, half the room emptied out. It's a lot of young people. As we watch them exit, it's such a great reminder how important it is to pray for the next generation. Um, I hope that's a commitment we can all make, whether we have kids in that age group or not, uh, whether you have sent off your kids and they're past that age group. It's so important we pray for the faith of the next generation. It's good to be back in the pulpit. It's been a little while, and I want to thank Pastor Frank and Pastor Stan for so capably filling the pulpit while I was taking a break to do other ministry. And I'm really grateful to be back. And this morning, we're going to start a new sermon series. And I will introduce you to that sermon series. I'm excited about it because I believe this series speaks to the heart of what God is doing in my own faith journey right now. Uh, it's a battle, and it's a victory that's growing in my life. And I want to share it with you. I'll start by saying that ever since human beings stared up at the night sky, they saw things moving consistently in the heavens. They could see stars and brighter things they suspected were not stars but planets, and they could see that these things moved across the sky in like a, a circular path. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those long exposure shots of nighttime where you see the stars arcing across the sky. If they had that technology, they would have, they would have confirmed what they already suspected, which is things move in circular paths, and it's regular and predictable enough that you could navigate the seas by the stars. You could tell the seasons mark the passage of time by that. And so they try to figure out, how does this all make sense? How does it all work together? Where does the earth fit into this bigger picture of the cosmos? In the third century BC, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle proposed a model of the solar system, and at that time, really, of the whole universe, because they didn't, they didn't know how big this thing was. But their whole universe was centered around the earth. And that made sense because Earth was where we were, and where do you frame the, the point of reference other than where you already are? It's like that, that mall diagram where it says, you are here, and without that, you don't really know what to make of that map. And so he proposed a model where the Earth was at the center of everything. And that made mostly sense of what they saw. But for those who were paying attention there were a couple anomalies that just niggled at the, the minds of astronomers. Like, it makes almost all the sense in the world, but there are a few things that we just can't resolve no matter how much advanced math we, we throw at it. And so they just sort of lived with it. It was uncomfortable, but because this model of the, the solar system explained almost everything, they just went with it. It wasn't until the 1530s that a brilliant Polish astronomer and scientist named Nicholas Copernicus 
dared to forward another picture. He said, what if we got it wrong? What if the sun is at the center of everything and not the earth? And it caused a firestorm of controversy, partly because theologians in the Catholic Church especially were up in arms about this because they believed that to make sense of the Bible, the earth and humanity had to be at the center of God's story, God's creation. And so they couldn't abide this idea that something else was at the center of it all. But once he posited that the sun was at the center of everything, all of those anomalies resolved, and the whole picture came into clear focus. I had an animation, but I think it wouldn't work on our projector today, so I wanted to show you just how graphically different the two models are. The geocentric is with Earth at the center, and the heliocentric is with the sun at the center. The geocentric model makes a kind of sense. There's a pattern in it, but it's a bit of a chaotic pattern. It mostly makes sense. It does repeat itself. There are patterns, but it's a bit messy. And I've shared this illustration before because I think it's a good analogy for our spiritual reality, for what Christianity proposes to the world. See, I don't think it's so much that we need Jesus to survive this earthly life as mammals. Plenty of people who have no time for Jesus, who have no vision of God, do just fine as human beings on this earth. They get through hard times. They're successful. They enjoy life. They rise with the heights. They sink with the lows. They go through everything the same as everyone else. I don't believe that the proposition is that you have to have Jesus in order to flourish and survive as a human mammal. That's the way we sometimes present it. It's like, you're going to be a total mess without Jesus. And here comes this non-Christian whose life is better than yours. Like, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that we need Jesus mainly to survive as mammals on this earth. But what we put at the center of everything matters supremely because if we are at the center, mostly everything will make sense. Especially when things are going well, life is okay. We don't ask a lot of deep questions. It's fine. There are a few things that stick in my craw and some things that I read in the Bible that I have a hard time reconciling, but mostly it works, so I blur my eyes on that other stuff. I put it at the periphery of my vision, and I just press ahead. There's no perfect theory. There's no perfect truth. There's no, And so we just go, it mostly works. Let's go with it. Here's the thing about putting the right thing at the center. When we're at the center, it mostly kind of makes sense, but it looks more like that. It's fuzzy, it's chaotic, and there are still going to be some things that you can't really resolve. Not just in your life, but in what God says is his version of reality. I believe the primary thing, the primary importance of putting Jesus at the center and not ourselves is because we can't actually make sense of how God describes reality with us at the center. It's not about whether you'll make it to the finish line, whether you will survive or not. It's about whether or not God's word will be viewed as truth. Because if you're at the center, God's word is totally confusing. It appears to lie a good amount of the time. God has the audacity in his word to say things like, we can and should rejoice in suffering and hard times. That he has a plan for our lives. And that plan is for us to to flourish, to be fully alive. 
He says that he will honor and answer the prayers that honor him. He says that he's always watching over us, so we need not be afraid that we can be strong and courageous. And if we're at the center, a lot of times that is hard to accept. It doesn't make any sense. But when God himself takes the center, suddenly the message of the Bible begins to be understandable, acceptable. It resolves into a clearer picture of reality. I want to argue for you through this series that what makes sense, what matters the most for Jesus to be at the center is not that without him you will cripple and, and stumble and limp your way through life, but that you can't actually make sense of God's claims in Scripture about this life and the life to come. And you can't actually experience the life that is promised to us, the life that is truly life, if you remain at the center of that story. Pain and hardship and loss. Frustration. Feelings like you didn't get what you deserved or what you worked so hard for. Those experiences come, and when those experiences come and we are at the center of that story, the whole thing will unravel because it just is unacceptable. But if God remains at the center, there is at least a path forward to make meaning out of what is happening around us. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't value us or see our stories as very important. He sacrificed a great deal to acknowledge that our stories matter to him. But we don't belong at the center of our lives. I believe that is one of the central ideas of the Christian faith, is it involves a swapping of who plays the central role in the story of our existence. I think most of us would readily admit that Jesus is an important part of our lives, right? Anyone join me in that? Okay. So I'm kind of setting you up here because I would also raise my hand if someone asked me that. Is Jesus an important part of your life? I would say yes. But if you read the New Testament carefully, Jesus has no intention of becoming an important part of our lives. But the story of the Gospels and the entire New Testament and the entire Bible, in fact, is pointed to this one fact. Jesus intends to be our life itself. Not a part of it, not an adornment, not an accoutrement, an accessory, but he wants to be the whole thing, the center, the driving force, the thing that brings the whole story together. Remember those, those uh, bumper stickers that used to say, Jesus is my co-pilot? And I remember hearing so many pastors say this, and I think they're right. That is a theologically erroneous bumper sticker. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you're going to crash. He's supposed to be your pilot. Jesus is supposed to be the one steering, not helping you to steer. And I know that makes some sense to us intellectually, but it's remarkable how many of us go through most of our lives asking Jesus to help us. We still want our hands firmly on the steering wheel, and we say, just tell me when the next turn is coming. And at the end of it all, we find ourselves someplace, and we scratch our heads and go, how did I end up here? Well, that's where you go when you're steering and asking someone who is almighty and all-knowing to assist. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this. Whoops. 
there we go. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Listen to this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is just one of so many passages that I've culled from the New Testament that paint a picture for us of a a God in the person of Jesus Christ who has no intent of being our assistant or a companion or a part of our lives, but his demand, his call, his invitation is to be the center of it. And it is then when that starts to take place that it all begins to make more sense, that the picture resolves into a kind of clarity. This new series we're beginning is called Jesus Centered. And that's the name of the whole series, but really this series is going to be a series of series. I hope that's not too confusing. There are going to be three movements in this series about what it looks like for Jesus to be at the center. And the first of those is simply titled, Follow Jesus. For Jesus to be at the center involves a fundamental decision, an imposture, a commitment, a movement that represents following someone who's leading us. Not asking him to follow us as we go. And that is one of the most important distinctions we will need to make if we're going to experience what the Bible describes as a Christian life. This morning I want to start that, that mini-series, Follow Jesus, with a message called Decision, because I really believe that that's where it begins. A decision, a fundamental decision about who Jesus will be and who I will be in relation to him. And to set that up, I want to ask you to take a few minutes. I'm going to give you like five, six minutes. And I'm going to ask you to turn to someone you're sitting near. Don't move around too much in the room. And I want you to spend a couple minutes taking turns sharing something. Here's what I want you to share. Share about one of the most important decisions you've made, either in the last recent past or in your life ever, apart from deciding to follow Jesus, okay? Apart from your decision to put your faith in Jesus, what's one of the more important human decisions you've made in your life? Share what that decision was and why you feel it was such an important decision in your life. So could you just turn to your neighbor and just talk about important decisions you've made in your life? And I'll call you back in six minutes. You'll see the timer up here. Thanks. Just looking around the room, I could tell for some of you this was an easy thing. For some of you, this is not an easy thing. I I get that. When I go to conferences, I actually don't look forward to the times of turning to my neighbor. (laughs) Even though I'm an extrovert, it's strange. I don't look forward to that time. Um, But it's useful um, because I think it it brings us into the conversation a little more. I don't know what you learn from listening to one another or hearing your stories, but it's interesting that probably our bias is to share our best decisions and equate those with our most important ones. But let's also be honest, some of the most important decisions in our lives are ones we've regretted, too. Bad decisions. They're important because, not not just because they brought benefit, but because they radically reshaped our lives. You could argue that life itself is just an unbroken chain of decisions, and that often one decision leads very naturally to the next. It opens up or closes the next set of decisions 
that are available for you to make. My story is very much that story. I could never have predicted the course my weird life has taken. I, when I tell people my story and, and list how many different jobs I've had, different lives I've lived, it sounds weird, almost like I'm making it up. And on each of those turns, I never really felt like I was plotting a course. I was just sort of reacting and moving. And each one of those decisions opened up another decision tree and closed many others. Life is about decisions. Our text this morning is about a very important decision a couple guys made. It records the calling of the first disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. They were brothers. They both happened to be fishermen. Their names were Andrew and Peter. And Matthew and Mark record very short versions of their calling. Uh, Luke has a little bit longer one. He tells a fuller story of this moment. And if you just read the shorter accounts, you would be led to believe that Jesus was just strolling down the beach, happened upon two fishermen who were total strangers to him and said, Hey, guys, you want to throw down everything, quit your jobs, leave your parents, and just follow me? And they said, Yeah, and then they just walked off with them. Uh, you would get that impression just reading these two shorter accounts. But if you read John's account, there's much more to the story, and I'm glad for that. I don't believe it's impossible for Jesus to meet someone and go, Hey, you and me, let's go. And for a person to just instantaneously, on the spot, have you ever made a decision like that? A massive decision you made with almost no thought, no prayer, just went, it feels right, let's go. And you just went for it. I've made a lot of those decisions in my life. My wife will attest, I sort of wired that way. But that's not, I know it can work that way. It seemed to work that way for Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus said, hey, come with me. And Matthew said, fine. And they just went. And there's no other account. So we would be led to believe that for Matthew, it worked that way. But for Peter and Andrew, it didn't quite work that way. It was a slower process. It happened, and look at this, this next passage. The next day, and this is the Apostle John's record of it. There was a, uh, John was there again, this is John the Baptist now, was again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And later in verse 40, he says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The point of that is, that when John the Baptist, this crazy wild man dressed in weird clothing, shows up in the Judean wilderness and begins prophesying and baptizing people, Andrew, who was a fisherman, proved himself to be a spiritual seeker. John the Baptist was no friend of the religious establishment. He was saying some things that are kind of crazy, and one of the main things he was saying is the Messiah is coming. A lot of people were saying that around the time, but John was a little different, and he said, no, he's coming soon, and I know who he's going to be. Andrew heard that and discerned a truth in what John the Baptist was saying, and he began to follow him. He became one of his disciples. And so already we see that Andrew is not your average Jew. He's a spiritually awake, seeking person. He's craving the Messiah to come. He's taking risks 
going against the grain of his fellow countrymen in order to find the truth. And so when one day Jesus stumbles across them and his, his rabbi, John the Baptist, says to him, hey, look, guys, there's the guy. That's the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And Andrew hears that and says, then I've got to check this out. So it says he left John and went to follow after Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I, lo- I love how not seeker sensitive Jesus is. If two people are following you, I'm like, hey, let's go. I'm so glad you're with me. He's like, what do you want? <laughs> I don't know if he said it like that. But he's actually asking the question, why are you suddenly following me now? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. I don't know why I put Jesus there at the end. (laughs) Never copy and paste. Um. So the point is, Now Andrew and another one of John the Baptist's disciples are saying, if this is the Messiah, we need to learn more. And they're drawn to Jesus. They sense something in his presence and they start to follow after him. And it says that they went to the house where he was staying. Jesus never owned a home in his entire life. So he was staying as a guest at someone's house. And around four in the afternoon for the rest of that day, they hung out with Jesus probably listening to him, asking him questions, soaking in just his presence, his demeanor. And the day after, Andrew was so moved by that afternoon and evening that he'd spent with Jesus that it says the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. So that afternoon, you could tell Andrew's agenda was, I got to see if this guy really is the one that John is foretelling is the promised Messiah. And that afternoon, he was convinced in his spirit And so it says, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So are you following the story? Andrew, a fisherman, a spiritual seeker, is a disciple of John the Baptist, and he keeps telling about a Messiah who is coming. And then one day he goes, that guy right there that just walked by, that's the Messiah. And so Andrew leaves John the Baptist, begins to follow after Jesus, spends an afternoon and an evening just soaking it in and is convinced. And the next thing he does is go and finds his brother Peter and says, Peter, we found him. And the fact that Peter goes along with him demonstrates that Peter also is a seeker. Now you understand up to this point, this is not a formal relationship. It's still an active exploration Andrew is drawn to Jesus. He's very interested. He's compelled by what Jesus is saying. He's willing to spend time with him and learn from him. I love that it says he brought his brother to Jesus. That's really what the story is, how faith propagates, how we pass it along one to another, is that we have an actual encounter with the living God, and we bring others to try to have this experience. Isn't it interesting That when we experience something that really moves us, we're not content to tell our closest friends about it. The guy in the train next to me, I might just go, yeah, I just came back from this restaurant. Wow, they have good food. I might be content to tell a stranger, but the people I really care about, I'm not content to just tell you about it. I'm like, you come with me next week. I'm going to buy you dinner there. 
I'm going to watch you while you eat it, and then your tears will come, and I'll feel so satisfied. Because when we really get moved by something, the people who mean the most to us, we don't rest until they experience it too. And so Andrew does this for his brother. And have you ever had the experience of introducing one friend to another new friend, and then those two hit it off and leave you out in the cold? I kind of feel sorry for Andrew, because Andrew was first in line to meet Jesus. He brings his brother... And Jesus takes one look at Peter and is like, we're going to be best friends, you and me. There's something in you I see. Your name is The Rock. I love this. Andrew's like, yeah. And you never hear about Andrew again for the rest of the story. He's listed in the list of disciples, but that's it. Peter all over the place. Andrew, booster rocket, falls away. Kind of feel sorry for him, but this is a beautiful story of the way relationships form. In fact, one time in Luke, it says that Jesus even went after teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He goes to Peter's house and finds that his mother-in-law is super sick with a high fever, and he heals her miraculously, and then she begins to wait on them. So this is a relationship that isn't just a hit and run. It's a growing relationship. There's elements of friendship. There's learning. Jesus is their teacher, their friend, They're spending time with him. They're learning from him. And they fellowship with him socially, religiously, and even experience in his presence supernatural miracles. That's a pretty good story so far. Up to this point in the story, we can honestly say that Andrew and Peter have a relationship with Jesus. I think we could say that about a lot of people in the church today across the world. They have a relationship with Jesus the way Peter and Andrew right now have a relationship with Jesus. They're keenly interested. They admire him. They spend time with him. And then they go home. They visit with him. They ask him questions. They hear his answers. And then they go home. Jesus at this point is in a relationship with these men. And he's a very important part of their lives. Probably the topic of many of their conversations. But till this point, he is still a part of their lives. So when we get to our text this morning, Mark, this is a pivotal moment. It's not some drive-by shooting where Jesus finds two strangers and goes, Hey, do you two weirdos who I don't know want to come and make your life with me? That's not the story. It's on the tail end of this growing relationship where he realizes these men are with him, but they're not really with him. And so he confronts them as they're putting away their fishing nets. And he says, today I'm going to ask you to make a decision that will redefine the entire framework of your life. Come, follow me. And it says that they left their nets and followed him, which is to say they left their family business, their means of livelihood. How much of your identity is caught up in what you do for work? When people ask you, what do you do? It's the same as asking, what are you? Isn't it? When I answer, I'm a pastor, I don't just mean that I make my money on my W-2. It says, pastor, I mean my identity is caught up in that. Just like if you're a doctor and you're on an airplane and someone's seizing up in the seat next to you, you don't, you don't say, I'm on vacation. I, you're a doctor. You're not just a doctor when you're on duty. You're a doctor. And so, so much of our identity is caught up in what we do. And what these men are saying that day is, Jesus is coming up to their, their, their lives and he's creating a fork in the road. You need to make a decision today. 
Because right now I'm a part of your lives. We have a relationship. We have a friendship. You're interested in me. But I'm asking you now to make that most pivotal life decision regarding me. Because this is not where I want that story to end for us. My first thought is, why is this necessary? What's wrong with what they have? They're, they're hanging out with the guy. They're making a living. They're enjoying all of this. This is good. Why does he have to come up to them in the, at their work? At their, you, Jesus, this is my job. Why are you here? Would you like it if I came up to your office cubicle or <laughs> where you work and be like, hey, I'm going to ask you to drop everything and just, this is what's happening. Why is this necessary? It's partly because these men had a special part in God's plan, but it's also illustrative of a foundational principle of the Christian life. And that is that Jesus is not content for us to just have a relationship with him. He's calling us like he's calling them to redefine everything around a central decision that will affect the rest of our lives. Will you follow him? You know, we used to call Christians believers, and it was pointed out to me in the 90s, that's not really a great term for us because we do more than just believe. Lots of people believe things, but we're more than that. And so people often said, let's be Let's call each other Christ followers instead. Don't just say believer because I don't want to just sit here and go, yeah, I agree with that, and that's enough. I want to follow him. And I think that's right. But I want to remind us, as God is reminding me, if you want to be a Christ follower, you have to follow Christ. It's not a census designation. It's not a a box you check off on a form. Asian Pacific Islander for me. Check Christ follower, check. To be a Christ follower requires a simple thing. It requires following Christ. Do you remember that's different from a dedicated life? It's a life dedicated to Jesus, not a life I live that I then dedicate to him, the way you dedicate a song on the radio. But it's a life devoted completely to his cause and to his leadership. And the invitation that he gives these men is necessary in their lives, but I truly believe it's necessary in ours as well. Up to this point in the story, most of us can identify with these men. That's where so many Christians are in the church. We have a relationship with Jesus. But in truth, we remain there way too long. We're very fond of him. We're interested in him. We do lots of things with him and for him. But there needs to be in each of our lives a fundamental decision to replace who sits at the center of this life. Many of us move around from city to city, from company to company, and part of it is because opportunities come and go, doors open and close. And that's really probably the driving current that shapes most people's lives are their professional opportunities. My company shut down. I found another opportunity. I went there. And when we look back at the course of our lives, so much of our lives are are defined by professional opportunity. I don't think there's anything morally evil about that. I'm just saying, though, that against that backdrop, 
we have to legitimately be able to say, but nonetheless, in spite of all those different ups and downs and open and closed doors, the driving force of my life, the thing that ties the narrative of my story together, is that through it all, I kept turning to the one who leads me, and I followed where he was taking me. I don't know that most Christians in the developed world can say that about their lives when they come to the end. A lot of people just go, I was, I was just smart and maybe a little lucky. I made some good decisions along the way. I picked the right industry at the right time, a little lucky, pretty smart. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's not bad. It's, it'll get you a, a nice life, but... I believe that what the world needs to see, what we need for ourselves, is a radically different posture when it comes to Jesus Christ. It's not so much that the world is is rejecting Jesus, but I really do, I'm, I'm convicted of this, we inside the church have at a low grade rejected Jesus at a certain level consistently. How many people that you know are allowed to go into your bedroom when you're not around? How many people you know are free when they're staying at your place to go through your drawers? To sit at your desk, to open your computer, to root around in there? Very, very few. That's the level of access that I believe God is looking for in our lives. And the truth is, that Jesus really is a guest in our house. He's not free to roam. He's not the master of that house in so many cases. I like to use that illustration of a guest versus the master of the house because I think it helps us capture the emotion of it. I'm realizing more and more, even as a vocational minister, how often I ask Jesus to remain a good guest in parts of my home which I designate for him. You could have the whole basement. There's a kitchen down there. There's a bathroom. It's great. Just please don't come upstairs and root around under my, my mattress. I don't like that very much. I really believe that Jesus is looking for a much deeper penetration into our lives than he's been given. And that's the call I want to make through this series. It's not a call to beat you up or oppress you with some heavy obligation. It's to just pull away the curtain and reveal to you, this will make more sense of the New Testament than you can imagine. To accept at the fundamental level, this followership of Jesus, this replacing of who is at the center, is the key that unlocks the code. If you're trying to find a reasonable Christianity in the New Testament, you won't find it. If you're looking for a controlled experience, a moderate level of engagement, you won't really find that described in the New Testament. We've invented a version of Christianity in American evangelicalism that is that, and we call it Christianity. But a lot of people who are awake in Christ right now are discovering that what passes for Christianity in the United States is not the same thing as New Testament Christianity. And at the heart of that discrepancy is our foundational decision regarding Jesus. And I mean that, that Jesus himself, more than any other philosophy, any other value, any other social ideology, Jesus Christ himself breaks all ties. He makes all commands. He's the only authority 
that I subscribe to. I won't let any other thought, value, idea rise above him in ordering my life. If we live that way, we would be deeply changed. And if we live that way, our verbal message will be more believable to a world that is rejecting what we say. I'll close this way. Years ago, a bunch of our community groups went through a curriculum written by a man named Kyle Eidelman. I remember being surprised by this because at that time he was in line to become the new lead pastor of the largest church in, or one of the largest churches in America. I don't normally, and please forgive my, my prejudice here, but I don't normally associate megachurch pastors with spiritual like depth. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I know that's really bigoted of me, but forgive me. I, I just the uh, observation I'm making. I read this and I'm like, what is this? This guy's going for it. He wrote a book called Not a Fan. And in that book, and you know, by the way, he's part of that title is a little snarky thing. He's like, I love saying I'm not a big fan of Jesus. But you're a pastor. His, by the way, his church is like 40,000 people. So it's a pretty big church. But here's what he was saying. This is one of the most memorable excerpts from that book for me. He says, Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer isn't an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Now, I'm not reading that excerpt to beat you up because I know there have been many instances where you have stretched far beyond your comfort zone. This is not an indictment of individual acts, ways we've responded to calls for help. That Our church excels in that. I'm sharing this with you not to indict you, but to inspire you to a better reflection about where you really stand with Jesus Christ. Which word better describes your true posture with him? Is it enthusiastic admirer? fan, or is it follower? That's going to be a struggle for a lifetime. I'm a 54-year-old pastor, a veteran of 28, 29 years of ministry. And I'm realizing that this is still an ongoing battle in my own spirit. I'm not saying I'm just starting the battle. But man, I thought I'd be much further along in this. It is so natural for us to put up barriers and limits and fences. And, and I, I think the, the greatest enemy of true Christian faith is this idea of being reasonable. Don't get carried away. Let's be, whoa, easy there, tiger. I'm doing a good job. I'm doing enough. I'm doing something. And Jesus says, I'm not here to do a little something. I, I didn't want to do like a better version of Judaism, Coke 2.0, new Coke. Remember that? Ugh. 
I'm here to do something new. I want a revolution to start. Aren't you a little bit bored? How many of you have been a Christian, a churchgoer, for like more than 10 years? Could you just raise your hand? Okay. Some of you struggle to stay awake, right? I, I know that. I, I see that. I see. But it's not just the sermon. Aren't you just bored with what passes for Christianity sometimes? The one-liners, the pad answers, the little tr- bumper sticker truisms, the weekend warriorism. The word follow has lost a lot of its punch today. Social media, I think, has ruined the word follow. To follow now is to click a button and go, all right, now I'm going to get your feed. How many followers do you have? We'll see. When you need help, how many of those fans, those followers, will actually come to your rescue? We should redeem the word follow so that it no longer means I'm enthusiastically interested in you. So that it means when you lead, I will go. I will no longer occupy the driver's seat in this journey. I won't chart the course and ask you to bless the journey. I won't live this life and then present it to you on a, on a plate and say, this was for you. We need to flip that around and say, no, here's my life. What am I to make of this? What do you want with this? I've got maybe 30 years left. If I'm blessed, maybe 40, I don't know. In a fresh way, I'm kneeling before God and saying, what do you want with those 30 or 40 years? I've made so many assumptions about his answer to that question. But I'm asking now. There's a kind of Christianity that relegates Jesus to an important part of our lives. And there's a kind of Christianity where Jesus is life itself. When you first came to Jesus, it was that second kind of life that you probably experienced that changed the entire direction of your life. Isn't it interesting how after so many years of doing this, it's so easy to slip into a place where Jesus, who is our life, is asked to stay in a room in our lives and not take over as the master of the house. I've tried my best to present this not as a scolding or as a self-righteous indictment of anyone else, but if your spirit is troubling you right now, if there's tension roiling up inside you, if you're tempted to be angry even at me, that's okay, I can take it. Let it wash over. But I want you to know that some of that tension you're feeling is the Spirit of God saying, I want more out of this than what we're giving each other. I have more for you. You have more for me. I don't want to be a part of anything. That's the Spirit of God saying to you, can you lay down your nets and make a foundational decision that He will be the center? It might not be your time to make that decision at this moment, but maybe it is. So in the quiet of this moment, I want to give you some time to just sit where you actually are. I've spoken to the whole church, but I think God's also been speaking just to you. 
So let's give him a chance to finish speaking now. Just listen. Let him lead your heart. Jesus and right now where you are is an enthusiastic admirer that's wonderful keep going, be right there that's okay but if you've known Jesus a really long time I want to challenge you to think about where you are with him right now how many years it's been that you have identified as a Christian what's the temperature and the nature of that relationship if it's good even pretty good how long has it been that way without changing do you sense God himself saying to you I'd like to be everything I want to rewire your thinking I want to change the things you live for down the service if you feel you still need to sit just reflect I want you to feel very comfortable doing that this whole series is going to be an invitation to reflect on your journey and the truth about where you are with the living God God, we pray that each week you would show up here and you would make yourself known to us. We pray that you would guard this pulpit and each person who speaks from it so that we would not misrepresent you or mischaracterize you, but that we would speak for you and about you. And as you speak, 
give us ears to hear and a willingness to respond to you. Holy Spirit, you are as much in the receiving as in the speaking of a sermon. And so week to week we pray you would open our hearts to you. Give us faith and courage to move towards the decision you are calling us to make. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.